Janus Films is proud to present 24 Frames, the final film from Abbas Kiarostami. A meditation on the nature of the moving image, composed of 24 short films based on photographs by Kiarostami. 24 Frames opens February 2nd exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. An academic once told me that food was going to be the new cutting-edge art form because it engages all five senses. So I was advised to consider writing about food and film to stay ahead of the curve. Although that bit of advice made me want to run screaming from the room, it's true that food engages us and bonds us in a way that many other things can't. In this episode of the podcast, we explore how food and film can remind us of our own families, its role in tradition and day-to-day routine, and how the sight of food can make us ravenously hungry. I was joined by... Michael Kresge. I'm editorial director at Film Society of Lincoln Center. Elisa Ma. I'm the head of programming at Metrograph. And... Mayuk Sen, staff writer at Munchies, which is Vice's food publication. And I'm a contributor to Film Comment to discuss the less obvious entries in the canon of food-related films. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you all for coming. You can all smell the delicious smell of onions, and if you don't like onions, I don't know what to tell you. So today we're going to be talking about food in film, which is a very broad topic. So we've divided today up speaking about films that remind us, or a scene that reminds us of making food while we were growing up, the tastes of home, and then a second film that just kind of makes us hungry. So, Michael, why don't you start us off? Well, this was a hard one to come up with because even though it seems like there are a lot of these like touchstone food movies, none of them necessarily spoke to my past like you can't like how many people had a babette's feast childhood it's like oh that turtle soup that that unforgettable was always served to me in my tiny little ascetic ultra religious village in denmark um so uh, i come from a jewish family um eastern european descent and uh so i was trying to think of a film that actually got at that um that culture and I finally happened upon Crossing Delancey, which is Joan Micklin Silver's 1988 romantic comedy starring Amy Irving. Um, Always been a favorite film in my house. My mom was a big fan, so I watched it a lot growing up. And I think there's been a bit of a Joan Micklin Silver renaissance over the past year or two. She did Mm -hmm. a special appearance at Film Forum. We had a big um, feature by Shawnee Anilo in Film Comet this past year. So it was kind of exciting for me to go back and watch it again. And it's one of those movies where food is kind of a constant in the film, even though it's not a movie about food. I don't know if people here have actually seen the movie. Is oh, it, hell like, yeah. You have? Oh, good. <laughs> so good. Okay, good. Because I know you, you, the Metrograph is down near Delancey, but yeah. I didn't know that. Every time I cross Delancey, I think about it. I know. Yeah. It's <laughs> one of those titles, right? Yeah. Okay, so I'm glad that people here, almost everybody here has seen Crossing Delancey, a film that means a lot to me. Um, but it's very culturally specific. It's very much about Lower East Side Jewish life. So, and as I was watching again, I was obviously looking for the food scenes, trying to pick out what about this movie spoke to me in this particular way. And I realized it's because, and this is how it was in my family growing up with my grandparents, aunts, uncles, I come from Massachusetts, but you know, all of these traditions that started in Lower East Side tenements in the mid 19th century were obviously being passed down because all mm-hmm. the same foods we were eating in Massachusetts as a Jewish family are the same foods they were eating in this film that they were eating in New York and in, in, in this particular community. So there are multiple scenes in the film where there are just spreads, you know, <laughs> you walk into a room and there's just going to be, you know, a pile of, of, of horseradish and beets and chopped liver and matzah and just like big piles of mustard that people slather on the sides of roast chickens. And, and it's not like these scenes are um, foregrounded in a way like this is the time where we eat. This is the meal scene. It's just part of the mise-en-scene. It's part of the overall cultural understanding of the film. And the way people eat is actually really interesting too. Like Sylvia Miles, who people may remember from Midnight Cowboy, an Oscar nominee from Midnight Cowboy. And Farewell My Lovely. <laughs> and Farewell My Lovely, yes. A two-time Oscar nominee <laughs> who um, is not that well-known these days, but she's still kicking. She's like 93. 
and she's she's kind of a New York personality. She just shows up, if it's, you know, she'd show up at the opening of an envelope was a famous phrase said about her <laughs> and Rex Reed, I believe. Brutal. <laughs> um, so she plays the matchmaker who is um, hired by Amy Irving's grandmother, her bubby, to set her up. So the first time she comes to the house, they have to have this big spread. And as she's talking about this man, this pickle salesman that she's going to set Amy Irving up with, she's stuffing her mouth full of food and you can just see it falling all over the place. And it's supposed to be kind of disgusting, but it just makes me really, really hungry because I just want to be there eating the locks and eating the bagels and eating everything, that she, the chopped liver that she's putting in her mouth. So in, it, in addition to all that, there's also the romance itself has a food component. As I said, he's a pickle salesman and she is working at this very um, high-end bookstore where she she organizes these readings with these really major authors. And so the she thinks of herself as kind of like this upwardly mobile person who's kind of escaping her roots, her Jewish roots, and she lives uptown. So the thought that she could be set up with this pickle salesman is really like horrifying to her. <laughs> There's actually a scene, second time or third time, she's going to meet him and she's warming to him, maybe a little bit, and she's walking down the street and her face is melting. And then she sees him and there's a close-up of him digging his hands into a big pickle barrel and sticking them into jars and her face falls and she realizes, I can't do this. <laughs> I can't be with a pickle salesman. And it's really crushing because you really want them to get together. And the movie just like goes on and on until finally she realizes that this is the man for her. There's also a really nice touch which he smells like vanilla, vanilla and milk because he has to like bathe in vanilla and milk to get the pickle smell off his hands, which I think is like a really delightful touch. Um, Anyway, so it's just this movie that just has an aroma of food, and it's and it's so much about this particular milieu. I don't think there's ever been a movie quite like it. Also, the pickle guys on Essex Street, yes, is the same exact kind of place where Sam the pickle guy works. Slightly different setup, but I, I think about you every time I watch that movie. <laughs> really? Yeah. Why? Because I love the pickle guys. Because I I think about you when I see that food. Mm. I mean, we, we go to Russ and Daughters all the time. It's so. true. I'm obsessed with Russ and Daughters, and I and I always I want to keep alive the um the experience of Jewish food in, in the family because my family's sort of um, dwindling. I'll put it that way. There's not a lot of us left, and I, I kind of want to keep the tradition alive and make these kinds of foods and pass them along to people. So yeah. And I remember going to the pickle guys uh, with you or at one point in your metrograph, because what they do at Passover is they actually, they kind of, um, they grate their own horseradish in front of you, but they have to wear gas masks because it's so incredibly strong. Mm. So I highly recommend going to the pickle guys, but of course watching Crossing Delancey first. Well, for the film that makes me remember home the most, I picked a film that's also one of my favorites ever, and that's In the Mood for Love. Yes. Um, it's a film that is uh, filled with food uh, at every turn, um, and every step along this incredibly sort of start and stop uh, journey of love uh, between Chow, Tony Leung's character, and Lee Soo-jin, Maggie Chung's character, at every turn there's food. Um, so, um, at first we see them pass by each other. You know, they, the, the story starts when Tony Leung's, uh, family moves next door to Maggie Chan's family and, um, they both go separately to the noodle stand and wonton stand, which is just around the corner from the apartment. And they pass each other day after day. And you can tell that the time is changing because her dress has changed and they don't speak. And Chow first realizes that his wife is having an affair with Maggie's character's husband when her husband, who travels around as a salesman, uh, brings home an imported Japanese rice cooker for everybody in their uh, apartment complex. So uh, Chow goes to pay this husband for the rice cooker, and he realizes that his wife had already paid for it, much to his embarrassment. Mm. So uh, Chow and Lee have, have dinner together and uh, knowing what they now know, they order for each other what their own spouse would normally order for dinner. And this begins a series of reenactments between the two, initially trying to come to terms with their uh, respective spouse's infidelity, but eventually um, actually finding real love in each other. Mm. And uh, there's this really moving moment where they're at this Art Deco uh, cafe in that scene where they first order for each other. Chow 
dabs a little bit of hot mustard onto Lee's plate. This is what I think of first when I think of this movie. Absolutely. Mm. And it's sort of the most elegant mustard holder I've ever seen (laughs) in my entire life. And she dips her steak into this mustard and she kind of chokes on it because it's so spicy for her. But, you know, you can tell that at the same time that her palate is uh, rebelling against what she's trying to feed it, there's a swelling of emotions and all of these really complicated uh, sort of battling uh, emotions that are coming to bear. And it's just this unspeakably moving moment that I think about all the time. Mm. Um, But in terms of what makes me remember home, I remember I'm from northern China. My my family grew up, uh, well, I grew up with my family near Beijing. Um, So what we eat a lot of around there is um, noodles, you know, rice. But um, I remember taking trips with my mother to the South, um, and that's a similar cuisine to what you would get in Hong Kong, and going to a place to get soup noodles for the first time. That's such a strong sense memory. Every time I have Cantonese food now, I I remember being at, at that roadside stand and having these wontons, having these noodles for the very first time. And it wasn't unlike uh, the stand that is in the movie. But also the rice cooker in the film. My father traveled a lot for work when I was when I was young. And uh, he would bring home very exotic things. Not necessarily like tools to make food. But I remember the first time he brought back a pineapple. Mm-hmm. And they literally invited every single one of their friends and their families over <laughs> to cut open this pineapple. And... Mm have everybody eat it and everyone's tongues went numb because nobody's palate was used to the acidity of the fruit which is a tropical fruit um and nobody really liked it per se but they just found it so fascinating it was such an event in the same way that you know when the rice cooker finally finishes making its uh cycle the landlady and everybody in that apartment are so excited when the little button pops up you know very relatable moment yeah yeah. No, I think everyone has had that moment where family members are like, okay, let's try and open this coconut. Yeah. Let's try, you know, quote unquote weird fruit. But yeah. Avocados for me that I remember the first time biting into an avocado and trying to eat the skin. You no! Bit, you bit right into it? Yeah. We didn't know how to eat it. We just thought that it was, you know, this exotic thing that we should try. And it was so, I mean, we ate it without any dressing. So. No! So one guy actually ended up puking after <laughs> after eating like 10 avocados because he thought like, well, I got to get my fill now. I think oh. it's something that's changed over time because yeah. now all food is available at all times. Exactly. Right. The globalization yeah. thing. Yeah. No, I love I love in the mood for love. It's just such a sensual. You mentioned Maggie Chung's dresses, obviously. Those are incredible. But the food is incredible, too. And the way... That they, yeah, that it's like this crucial part of them communicating with each other and building their relationship is just so. Yeah. Ugh, I wish they made movies like that. <laughs> she <laughs> she makes him sesame syrup when she finds out that he's sick from his friend. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a very sort of tender relationship that both people, because they're so emotionally withheld, food becomes a way for them to communicate their feelings for each other towards the middle of the film. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting about the film is that because film is a medium through which we cannot taste or smell, but the appearance of food really arouses other sensual responses as an audience member. And that's what makes the film all the more appealing. I also think of it in terms of the way the camera is capturing the food. I mean, I know that sounds like an obvious thing to say, but when I think of that scene with the mustard and the steak, is it steak, right? Yeah. For example, I can't separate them eating it and the food itself from the way the camera is kind of tracking back and forth on the table, right? So you have this like very smooth move where the camera like goes from him to her and back again. And you can tell that there's like, it's like an exchange of glances and exchange of flavors and, and it's all happening within these like really delicate, beautiful camera flourishes. Mayuk, you want to talk about your first choice? Yes. So um, in terms of foods that remind me of my family, um, so kind of like Michael, I was kind of going through my head about like, you know, this canon of food movies like Babette's Feast, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, Big Night, etc. And none of them has, have really resonated with me in terms of, you know, 
I can watch them and extract something that's relatable um, from them in terms of how my family ate. And so my mind immediately gravitated towards, okay, what movies did I like grow up watching constantly? And one of those was Kiki's Delivery Service, yes. which I find is, you know, unfairly neglected within uh, Miyazaki's whole filmography. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's just in my head. But um, and it's a movie that I watched a lot with my mom. And I think that in general, you can... Someone has probably written a master's thesis on food and Miyazaki movies, but I feel like most people gravitate towards Spirited Away and, you know, these bountiful feasts that exist within it. But I really find a lot of the food in Kiki's Delivery Service, um, just the way that the film treats food so beautiful and subtle because I think that the film is about depression in a lot of ways and how, you know, (laughs) and I think that's why I I respond to it so Mm -hmm. much, you know, Um, and... I think that, so obviously Kiki, you know, a big pivotal part of the whole plot is that Kiki moves into this bakery, you know, in this new town um, away from home. And so she's surrounded by bread and cake and everything else. Um, But a lot of the food scenes in that movie are just her eating like the most simple stuff. Like I, you know, there's just a bunch of like oatmeal with honey and milk and everything like that. But a lot of the um, meals that she has are, solely with Gigi, who is her only companion throughout this whole movie and journey, really. And I think that whenever I think about how my family ate, um, you know, my mind kind of operates in this very informed, like, recent history because my father just died a few months ago. And so I can, I think the way that I'm operating with my grief right now is that I can only see kind of, you know, my family in terms of my mom and I kind of eating together and alone and eating kind of saddish meals, you know? And I think that Kiki's Livery Service is, the, is a movie with a lot of really sad meals. Um, the one that really stands out to me is there's this moment where Kiki learns that she is losing her powers as a witch. And the way that she learns that is that Gigi, who is this, you know, talking cat usually, um, he stops being able to talk to her. All he can do is like meow at her. And she's just like alone in this like, cruddy like dusty room that she's you know um lives um in outside the bakery and she just like notices that you know her cat is meowing at her instead of actually talking to her and responding to her queries and stuff then she gets on her broom and she realizes that she can't even fly it but as this is happening she's like eating this meal i think it's just like fried egg and sausage and i think toast and it's like the most it's just like a breakfast meal you know but Mm -hmm. for some reason just the moment at which that you know that meal comes within the movie is just so um beautifully sad and it reminds me a lot of just like eating with my mom lately you know Mm -hmm. and just how like a lot of times we don't even really think about what we're eating almost we're just like eating just enough to kind of like sustain us and get by you know and I think that I don't know I, I in general I feel as though that um movies not given enough credit for how subtly and intimately it treats kind of, you know, this uh, preteen's depression and just what it's like to kind of embody that mental state, you know. But I will also say that in general, there's a lot of other food within that movie that is not so sad that is treated really beautifully um, by Miyazaki. Like, so I'm allergic to fish, but there's this herring pot pie that she makes for one of her, like, I guess, clients, you could say. Um, And God, it looks so beautiful. It's just like, you know, this ugly thing, like shaped like a fish that when it's put in the oven and then when it emerges, it's just this like beautiful, like golden crusted and it's gorgeous. I wish I could eat it, you know? Um, And then like, Kiki delivers it to um, the woman's granddaughter who's like, I hate it, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And God, I just like, I'm so pissed off at the character. But (laughs) but yeah, that's my thing. Yeah, that lady doesn't know what a tough time Kiki is going through right now. Truly. It's outrageous. And how much love went into that herring pot pie. It's crazy. Don't order something if you don't want it, lady. Um, I love that movie. It's <laughs> it's interesting talking about food in terms of grief. Um, it's obviously a huge component of it. And then, you know, it only sitting here talking to you today, you know, suddenly think about the connection between Crossing Delancey and my mom and my dad's death. It really is a similar thing. Like the last really happy memory I have of my dad is totally food related. Food is a thing we share with our family and like it's really hard to separate those two things. And to know that it's really something that's special in the family particularly that can mean a lot. I mean I just remember like my dad's delight at eating this particular food. It brought Mm -hmm. me back to the moment when he ate it 
his whole life with his family. But yeah. I mean, he's, he was eating it in the fifties with his family, you know? Yeah. It's a and connection. It's the very specific thing, eating this like smoked salmon on cream cheese, you know, it's kind yeah. of, I guess it's a little more mainstream these days, but they were eating it before it was certainly a mainstream thing. And like, before it, it was cool. Instantly, That's right. Before it was cool. You're just a bunch <laughs> of hipsters <laughs> in, from in Lower East Side. Blah, blah, blah. I get it, first. Michael. I don't know what to say about it. We were eating herring, knishes for any of your White fish it. salad. Bialy. Any- uh, God, I love white fish salad. But yeah, well, I'm going to talk about another type of simple meal. My family would make for holidays, we'd make a big old spread. But most of the items were from boxes like rehydratable <laughs> potato, mashed potatoes, um, cranberries from a can, vegetables that were frozen and then prepared by boiling them so they would have like negative flavor. But, <laughs> but a very no. particular flavor that once you have, once you know, it's hard to kind of get yes. out of your head. Once you push, you have like that slime that comes off of them that touches your other food and makes <laughs> it taste horrible. Yum. Unforgettable. So I'm going to talk about Foxcatcher, which is a film that definitely not, definitely not surrounded by food. Definitely not. If you're like, hmm, yeah, this is really saying a lot about like, yum, yum, Foxcatcher. But <laughs> Well, maybe you are saying yum yum for the wrestling part. The delicious, seductive <laughs> foxcatcher. Yes, that's true. Some people. Some people do. Some people love, love wrestling that. fantasies, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, but I'm specifically talking about the moment where Channing Tatum's character sits down, and this is towards the beginning of the movie, where he, he lives in a house, but it's a pretty depressing little house. Um, he's under the shadow of his older brother, uh, played by Mark Ruffalo, who's, you know, this amazing Olympic gold medalist wrestler and he's just sort of like he goes to practice gets pushed around by his brother quite literally comes home makes ramen noodles and then kind of fucks around doesn't do anything like he has he has no life and i think you know the moment where you see him eat the ramen noodles it's kind of driving home the point that this is not the life a champion should lead, right? This is this is a great as somehow a degraded existence for him. And yet he's not thinking that. He is just sitting there just sort of eating this food kind of mindlessly because it's part of this routine that he has come to accept. And I mean, I think that pre-made food, it can be part of something like oh my God, we're making this huge spread. We have to kind of cut the corners on certain things maybe. But then it also could just be like, I just need to fucking eat something. Like this has the nutritional requirements that I need. And uh, I remember when I first started watching anime, like Kiki's Delivery Service, I started eating ramen uh, and I thought it was super exotic. And also very economical, 10 cents. So I mean, it's and and the cheapness of the ramen, the cheapness of the food that he's eating is sort of, because most of Foxcatcher is very quiet. There's very little dialogue. And people make a big deal about, oh, Steve Carell had a big, giant, silly nose, blah, blah, blah. But actually, sorry, <laughs> it's a very well-made film that has a lot to say about class in America and specifically how rich people use poor people and how rich people sort of prop themselves up with these ridiculous commissioning documentaries about how great their families are or how great they are or how great leaders they are. If we need a movie right now, this might be it. <laughs> wow bold statement i sorry if you're really looking because all these people are like what is the movie we need right now i'm telling yeah. you it's foxcatcher interesting uh tidbit it's one of the few films of recent years that terrence davies actually watched and it's he true liked it. huh. maybe he clearly probably is like hmm wrestling well i what do you mean probably, <laughs> I mean, probably. <laughs> he's seen his original his first the first shorts that he made where, i know that's like, what i'm the saying alter egos flipping through books of like Leathermen and wrestlers. Yes. And he like pastes them up on his wall. He's like, all right, we're going back old school. All right, yeah. yeah. He like Terrence. watches one movie a year. He's like, oh, I mean, he looks at the plots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so like, oh, I'll watch that one. Yeah, He's like, keyword search wrestling. Nothing. Wait, oh, wait. <laughs> anyway. But also, it's microwave ramen. That's yes. something that's interesting. That yes, I read. Like, just, it just kind of enhances like the utilitarian aspect well, of it. No. He's going to get this thing cooked in his mouth and over as fast as well, he possibly and can. And also that, that the microwave is, again, this symbol of like mid-century achievement. And then not even by before the end of the century, it's this totally, again, this degraded experience like American capitalism. Sorry, this is getting super Marxist-y. But uh, <laughs> it is. I mean, it, it used to be like, okay, you got this, you know, Wonder Bread. That used to be like 
quote unquote rich people food and then something changed and now it's just sort of what people on food stamps or other forms of public assistance can afford. It's sort of easy to think of it as a throwaway moment, but it's quite, it's saying quite a lot about a lot of things. And I think that's true of all of the film. Janice Films is proud to present 24 Frames, the final film from Abbas Kiarostami, a meditation on the nature of the moving image composed of 24 short films based on photographs by Kiarostami. 24 Frames is a playful and moving farewell to one of the giants of cinema, Called, quote, gorgeous and enigmatic by The Guardian, 24 Frames opens February 2nd exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. But you did not prepare microwaveable ramen for us tonight. I did not, no. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone knows, because we haven't said yet, as we sit here, we can smell food from the kitchen cooking mm-hmm. so we can actually eat when this podcast is over yeah, because we're getting dirty be making like, ourselves hungry wrap it up anyway um. but it's nice should we should we regale everybody with what we made yeah sure i made ethiopian lentils doll sort of a thing not quite india not quite ethiopia but it smells it's got berberay in it it smells yummy can't wait because to eat it it's, it's, the smell is just Filling the room. Yeah. <laughs> Making me antsy. Um, I made a potato kugel. So it's a it's a savory kugel. Um, and there there's definitely like kugel on the table in Crossing Delancey in many, many mm-hmm. shots. Um, and it was great because last night I almost forgot and then I like had to do it really late. But then over the course of the night, the whole apartment, because it takes like two hours in the oven, so the whole apartment smelled like onions. It was it smelled like my grandmother's apartment, actually. It was delicious. Mm. I made a roasted butternut squash with uh, red onions, and it's a an adapted uh, Odolangi, I think that's how you pronounce his name, mm-hmm. recipe, um, and it has pine nuts and cilantro. It's in no way related to any of the films that I'll be talking about today, <laughs> but it's, it's, I brought it because I make it all the time, yeah. and it's so easy, and it's delicious, and uh, it's really good for you. Yeah. So. Michael was here when I was preparing my dish and he's like, aren't you, do you need to look at a recipe? And I was like, no, it's just something I like, I know I can make it in my sleep. It's just like, okay. Um, I bought a tart. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a reason. Yeah. uh, Well, okay. I did have a family emergency, but also I I swear you guys all dodged a bullet because if I cooked for you, it would truly be like, you know, (laughs) I'll be in the hospital immediately. Just like terrible, you know, but I I got, I I bought a tart that has blueberries and strawberries on it. Um, Yeah. And it's inspired by the tart from uh, two days, one night, which I'm about Mm -hmm. to discuss. So, you know. Why don't you just talk about it? Fantastic. So, well, so we were asked to um, talk about a movie that um, makes us very hungry. And so (laughs) it's kind of interesting because I'm so drawn to all these like stories and movies about women who are incredibly depressed. And like another (laughs) one of those is Two Days, One Night. Um, Okay, let me just stop you there. This is not, I feel like a lot of, this is true of a lot of gay men where they're just like, oh my God, women suffering. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, yes. <laughs> There's a lot to be written on that subject. And I feel like it hasn't been written yet. Yeah. I was deciding between this and clute, but the only food in clute I could remember was just like this cat food that she likes. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. like, what? what What do I bring for that? Thanks. Like hummus, you know, like I can't <laughs> poison you with cat food. But um, I, so, you know, I had not really seen Two Days, One Night since like three and a half years ago when it first came out in theaters. But I do remember that there's this kind of like tart with fruit in it that, you know, she brings out of the oven. Marion Cotillard brings out at some point in the movie out of the oven. And I just remember it looking like beautiful. It's like bejeweled, you know, ruby thing. I was like, God, that looks so good. And this is such a miserable uh, slash cautiously hopeful movie that you know um, that and yet this stands out and then I rewatched it a few days ago and was like okay where is this you know I was like kind of scanning the whole scenes and I realized that it comes in the very first scene so I mean the first scene the way it unfolds basically is you know Marion Cotillard is like asleep on her bed and then she just gets this call and it's like this ominous ringtone that you know you hear throughout the whole movie i feel like i hear it in my nightmares it's crazy <laughs> but um she gets this call um from her co-worker named juliet telling her about her 
very precarious job situation about how basically after this like leave that she takes, she's going to have to basically fight for her job and to, you know, keep it. And then she's like, oh, wait, I have a tart in the oven. It's done. And then she just gets this tart out. And yeah, it's like relegated to the background. It's pretty much the only thing I can focus on, even though it's in the background. And I think that... In general, the way that the film treats this character's depression, I think, is very delicate. And the way that Marion Cotillard especially kind of um, portrays her character is really beautiful in that sense. But um, I think that, especially just occupying the food world, there's all this very, like, you know, smarmy idealization of women's cooking and cooking with love and and love being an ingredient, etc. And I feel like, I think one of the reasons why I love this movie and this tart specifically is because it totally challenges that kind of notion of, you know, like what it means to like cook with love because it's a woman who's just trying to get by, you know, she's just like barely functional. Like she has the time to, you know, cook this for her kids and she's doing it. And even then it's, I don't know, everything is kind of getting in the way of her happiness and she can't really put kind of the attention and care that should go into this, you know, tart or whatever to make her kids happy. You know, she can barely take care of herself. How can she take care of other people and be responsible for so many other lives? Um, I, I think that this is basically like the whole thesis statement of the movie is in like this small scene or whatever. And yet I kind of, I just like objectively, I just like look at this tart and I'm like, shit, I really would like to have some of it. <laughs> and I swear, I when I visited Whole Foods to like find a tart like this, there's nothing that looked like it. Instead, it's just like, you know, garden variety, like raspberries and blueberries on top of this thing and strawberries. And it's like, it looks nothing like the tart that Marion Cotillard <laughs> makes. So I'm sorry, but we'll um, have to I, deal. Yeah. I remember that too. Like that's a movie where once the like plot kicks in, like kind of like the concept of the film kicks in where she's you know going to each of these people to kind of beg for them to help her keep her job Mm -hmm. right it kind of loses something that's there in that first scene yes like just kind of that that lived-in quality where you're just kind of being with her and you're kind of seeing and also the way it establishes so fast that she puts so much care into things then she and and also you realize later that she's been on leave for depression yes. she's been on leave yeah. from work so you think like well she's using her time well like she's at home and she's cooking she's taking care of the kids she's being creative and she's doing her best to kind of bring herself out of this and i just think that that tart stands in for so much but so i agree it looked delicious too i'm really hungry Eliza. uh yeah i want to talk about lolita yes um it's not a film that makes me necessarily hungry <laughs> for any particular food item but I think it's it's one of these films that um, evokes hunger both in a spiritual and physical way through food in the most effective uh, manner that I've seen. And I think it all begins with Nabokov's uh, sort of story because, you know, it, w- it was said that he couldn't drive a car, but he it, that didn't stop him from writing, you know, gorgeously and elaborately about the act of driving. And it was a similar thing, like he... He was not a person who cared at all about what he ate. And as chronicled in Letters to Vera, he literally lists every single meal he eats in memos to his wife, Vera, without any embellishment. And it's like the most cold, you know, style that he's he's ever sort of worked with. And it's it's just like cold cuts, fried eggs, liver, gooseberry <laughs> jelly. Um, but Similarly to the driving thing, it, it didn't really stop him from using gorgeous food metaphors in his writing. So, for instance, like in the book, he describes like Lolita's apricot midriff, you know, yes, <laughs> apricot, yes, yes. and it's so thirsty. Yes. <laughs> and um, so, so you really get the distinct feeling that, you know, the fruit held an erotic charge for the author and that became fodder for a lot of the metaphors that were being used in the writing. And and then later on, he he describes the motel floors where they where they shack up as um, having golden brown glazed or fried chicken bones uh, floors. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the subtext there is that there's some weird stuff going on between old Humber Humbert and Lolita. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in Kubrick's film, what's really interesting is that food isn't so much a metaphor, but a, more of a literal sign of um, James Mason's Humbert's uh, hunger and longing for Lolita, especially in the first half of the film. And a lot of the times it's used to incredibly hilarious effect. Um, like when he first visits the the home 
of Mrs. Hayes. You know, she's showing him around and she's, you know, talking very closely to to him and um he's so annoyed with her and he's so fed up with her like the moment he sees her there's just so much hate um and and so before he could extricate himself um she says oh well you must see the garden before you leave and as she's describing her incredible cherry pies that won all these awards in in the in this in the fairs, um, you see this this shot of Lolita, you know, this in this elevator shot up and down um, from the perspective of Humbert Humbert, and you know she's the mother is talking about the cherry pies in the background. Um, and in that moment, Humbert decides, oh, I'm going to stay. I'm going <laughs> to rent this. I'm going to start living here right now. <laughs> And when she, the mother asks, so I'm sorry, what was the decisive factor for staying? Was it my garden? And he said, oh, I think it was your cherry pie. <laughs> and it's so, it's so funny because it's also used as a sort of like sign of his disgust for Shelley Winters' character. Like they're at this, at this dance early on in the film and uh, she, the mother eats a hot dog. And uh, as Humber Humbert is being introduced to these friends, you know, she leaves with one of them to, um, to dance. And she leaves this disgusting half-eaten hot dog <laughs> in the palm of Humber Humbert. Nothing has ever made hot dogs look less appealing. <laughs> Besides a real hot dog. No, I, I actually think they're awesome. Um, you can't and, look at them, though. No, they're... They look amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Agree to disagree. (laughs) But food really, I mean, it's being used in such a a hilarious way in the beginning of the film, the first half of the film, to sort of emphasize uh, the relationship these characters have. And so much of it goes unspoken. You know, it's either a signal of people's love or desire for, for one another, or it's being used as a sort of way to show disgust for, for one another. I mean, there's no, like no glass of champagne has ever looked as disgusting as when they go home from that dance and Shelley Winters pours uh, James Mason a glass of what she calls uh, rose champagne. (laughs) Um, But then Lolita comes home and she's hungry and she says, you know, they had these disgusting salty fish eggs there and I couldn't eat anything. And Humbert rushes to the kitchen and makes her this sandwich that's has it just loaded with mayonnaise and he says just the way you like it but i think my favorite scene uh, like of all time involving food item on film is when lolita is tasked with bringing up humbert's breakfast and by the time she's gotten from uh, downstairs to upstairs she's already eaten all of his bacon and she's in the process of eating his toast. And she sits down and he starts trying to impress her by reciting Poe to her. And she says, it seems like these poems are kind of corny, to be honest. And he says, well, if you were my student, I would definitely give you an A+. And this transitions into a sort of like more amicable talk between the two of them. They bond for the first time. And he says very earnestly, you know, I would never betray you, your trust. You know, I would never tell your secrets to anybody. And at that point, she reaches down into his plate and takes one of the fried eggs and dangles it on top of his face. And she says, well, for that, you get a reward. And she tells him, lean your head back, open your mouth, and take. you're allowed to take one small bite at a time. And at that one moment, you know, it, it, like just all of his hunger, his spiritual and physical hunger and all of his, it, it comes forth. And I mean, it doesn't make me want to eat fried eggs ever again. <laughs> But I think it's a really interesting way that, you know, you, yeah. It's a perverse way of eating eggs. It's yeah. true. I mean, and that I've, it actually made me think, I forgot about it until you brought it up. And I was always really repulsed by that. I mean, it's amazing. It's an amazing scene. It's but amazing. like the, the thought of dangling a single fried egg and eating it that way, there's something about, I don't know, the gelatinous quality of it. It's just really perverse. It's very perverse. You take and something. It's, it's, not the, it's not right. It's not supposed to be done that way. <laughs> It's so much about power, and at that one moment, their power dynamic kind of flips, and it's because of this fried egg. 
what is the deal with Kubrick and food generally? Now, now my mind is racing over Kubrick films. Does he? He does. Well, there's not I, a lot of. I mean, Clockwork Orange. Yes. Well, I mean, I was thinking of actually the Milk Bar, but you were thinking of. Well, the spaghetti. Oh yes, of course. The spaghetti. The wine, try the try the wine. And the way that he chews, the way Malcolm <laughs> yes. McDowell chews, and then At opens the end, his mouth yes, in the hospital right, way yes. of wanting to be fed. I think that Kubrick. And then there's the bacon scene in The Shining. Oh right. right, yes. So he, there, there. I don't think that that he makes food sensual. I think he makes it grotesque. Yeah. Well, well, I'm sure we'll get a um, academic monograph very soon to the film common offices <laughs> about Kubrick and hideous food, <laughs> <laughs> monstrous and Kubrick food. Um, <laughs> Michael, do you want to talk about your next choice? Sure. Uh, so the the movie for me that makes me really hungry is also a perverse choice in a way because it's enjoyed by a Nazi. <laughs> uh, the, movie, the movie is Inglorious Bastards, Tarantino's film. I thought that it was a nice um, juxtaposition with Crossing Delancey, so <laughs> I didn't think of it that way. Um, just worked out that way. And actually, so I found some interesting parallels. I'll get wow. to in a second. Wow. Um, Quinter, no, QT's really got it on a loop. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> He's got Crossing Delancey on a loop. You never know. You never know. I know. That guy's weird. Um, well, I actually thought it would be interesting to... to to talk about food in relation to villains, because mm. that's that's a thing that actually turns up a lot. Going back to Dracula, I mean, there's just, it's about yeah. voraciousness and desire and hunger, and and often a, a lot of villains are kind of tagged to the foods that they eat, even in like tiny ways. So I actually just when I figured out I was going to do Inglorious Bastards, I thought, okay, it does seem like a lot of villains in uh, a lot of famous films, famous American films connected to food not just Hannibal Lecter for obviously reasons but like Norman Bates eating the candy corn mm -hmm. while the car goes into the bog and um and that made me think of um uh Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men the way he can't stop eating those sunflower seeds mm -hmm. and there's a and I thought of Baby Jane <laughs> serving that bird oh, I thought yes. of and the, even Annie Wilkes uh Kathy Bates in Misery mm -hmm. I was thinking like there's got to be something and her her weird food thing is that she's considered to be tasteless. She has no taste. Oh, right. So she she her she talks about her recipes and how she like mixes spam into her spaghetti and it's supposed to be so disgusting and you know like all of her she has so many negative qualities, right? <laughs> One of them has to be <laughs> her bad food taste. Mm -hmm. So this really like if you go back and look at most villains there's some food element. But for me the strudel that Hans Landa eats in Inglorious Bastards is the most delicious, purposely, the most delicious looking dessert I can even think of in a movie. It's perfectly flaky and crispy and the sound design in the scene is 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 emphasized so you can hear every time the fork goes into it, every crunch of every flake and the way that he chews. And there's a close-up of the whipped cream as it's being put on the uh on the strudel. The scene is really interesting because it's it's the scene where he He's kind of pseudo interrogating the Melanie Laurent character. Um, he's curled her whole family uh, years before in in France, and she's gone into hiding. He doesn't know that this is actually her. We believe he doesn't know. He's interviewing her for this other reason. He he he's he wants to make sure that he can use her movie theater to show a film to Hitler in. It's a great plot. Um, but he refuses to show it if they allow the black projectionist to work there. So ostensibly the scene is him kind of gently forcing her to fire the black projectionist, though there's the underlying thing happening at the same time, which is like, does he also know that this is the girl of the family <laughs> that he killed the jewish family so um and of course you know tarantino's really good at those like one-on-one -on -one elongated suspense scenes so this thing goes on but during the entire conversation which is in a restaurant he's eating this strudel and he also forces her to eat strudel and the connection that i found with the crossing delancey which is a weird one there's a scene in crossing delancey where amy irving goes out on a really bad date not with the pickle guy who's great but with a really pretentious writer played by Jerome Crabbe from, from, from The Fourth Man, the Verhoeven from The Fourth Man. And he orders dessert for her without even the asking. The dessert cart looked so good, though. Yeah, they're in a French restaurant, and the dessert cart comes by, and she's leaving. And he's like, you're staying for dessert, right? And she's like, no. And he's like, no, you're having dessert. And he forces her to have dessert. So he, like, he orders two different desserts. And then as she's trying to talk, he talks over her and talks about how much he likes her dessert. And he takes food off of her plate and he's eating and talking over her and it's really subtle and they never call attention to it again but it's a similar it's a similar thing there are these men forcing these women 
to stay at the table and eat desserts that they don't want. And um, I thought, I, I just thought that said a lot <laughs> in both cases. <laughs> One may be a Nazi. <laughs> the other is just a pretentious asshole writer. But, you know, there's some similar qualities going on there. Some, some um, male aggression. Um, sorry, that scene ends with a cigarette being stamped out in the middle of the strudel on the play, which is like the ultimate violation. Something so beautiful has been totally destroyed. Um, so it makes me really, really hungry every time I see it. Well, I'll talk about mine, which is Satyajit Ray's Pather Panchali. And what can I say about a film that is just like universally loved? But it's based on a Bengali novel, you know, sort of a coming of age tale about Apu. And Pather Panchali is the first in the Apu trilogy where, you know, you see him be born and then you see him come into the world and sort of explore the world with his sister, Durga. Um, it's a very emotional film, largely because their father, you know, he's sort of like a poet, a fanciful poet, like an artist, a religious guy, but he doesn't, he doesn't really bring home the bacon, literally. Uh, so, um, you know, he, so much of the film is them, you know, watching other kids get sweets. Durga gets in trouble for like stealing fruit from the mean rich family's garden. There's a lots of little, I don't know, there's just so many little moments in the film that are just like, you smell the aroma of the food that's not there. And then when food is there, it's just like this ecstatic thing. So living in a country where it's like, oh yeah, you know, just go to the grocery store and it's just full of all this food and there's so much food there that just gets thrown out. And here, oil is something that's like, heavily guarded and so precious to just eat on its own and it I don't know it just makes me super hungry because the characters are so constantly hungry and when they do get food it's just like it's this amazing experience that nothing else in their world Raya is so good at these pauses you know not just the way that characters speak but just like sort of building things up and I was reading an interview today with him that was published in film comment from like 1968 and he talks about he didn't really trust the kid actor non-professional to sort of fill in the emotional things about the character so he would place like little obstacles in the road where he would want the kid to walk and he would yell at him when he wanted him to turn his head and it's just like maybe not a super fun experience for the kid but it is like one of my absolute favorite films and you know I get a, like a nice Tarka doll and some puri to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Highly recommend. Before we end, it would be great if each of us went around and talk about a film briefly that we saw recently that we liked. I saw Yee Yee on Saturday. Oh my God. Fucking perfect movie. It's so good. And I hadn't seen it in a while, probably like five years or something. And it was on a print that was really wonderful. And it was just so funny and moving and kaleidoscopic and I don't know at the end I just like relived the sadness of Edward Yang's death out of anybody like what a great loss that was and yeah it, god I can't even talk about it. it's wonderful I love that movie so much yeah I ne wouldn't necessarily want to talk about this movie at the end of a food podcast but it is probably the movie I watched most recently that was great which was the 1972 documentary Winter Soldier which I had never seen before. Isn't that like what Captain America is based on? Yes. And I wonder if anybody involved in making that movie was aware of the title <laughs> that they were taking from the 1972 documentary <laughs> Winter Soldier, so which weird. is a truly, truly upsetting and shocking documentary about um, uh, soldiers returned from Vietnam testifying in Congress about the atrocities that they saw there and that they carried out. I had known about this documentary for many years and had wanted to see it and finally got around to it and... I'm genuinely, genuinely more disturbed than I even thought I would be. So it's great, though. It's extremely important. I do recommend people seeing it if they can, but it's a tough sit. Um, I saw The Commuter as my most recent watch. Yeah, at the end of the year, it's sort of, sort of been a, a bro tour, what I call bro tour fest. <laughs> I mean, you have like Paul Thomas Anderson, you have Spielberg, and then soon we're going to have uh, Eastwood and uh, Jaime Colet Sarah's, you know, he's he's really good at making movies, you know. I, I feel like, you know, if you're going to go bro tour, you should definitely not omit Jaime Colet Sarah from that. I mean, <laughs> I watched it in a movie theater in Queens, and literally every single person was on the edge of their seats, and 
you know, there's such an intense buildup from um, throughout the course of the film that everyone was just kind of like going crazy. And so I highly recommend watching it in a movie theater if you're going to if you're going to watch it at all. Um, I will end on kind of a food note, I guess. Um, so I've been trying to play catch up with like Indian movies more. Um, and I finally saw this one movie that came out, I guess, six years ago now called English of English, which okay, it's not like an objectively good movie because it has all the trappings of just like, you know, kind of bullshit Bollywood stuff, you know, like anyone who I mean, a part of it takes place in America and every single American character is so thinly sketched out and you know you 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 just imagine that like each actor is being paid just like three cents you know for like their whole time in the movie but they're getting treated the way indian people are treated in american movies i know yeah exactly it's great to see that power dynamic like inverted but um so this movie was um known as this like big actress named Sri Devi um who is considered in some circles like the Meryl Streep of India which is a very loaded you know um mm. title but whatever. Um she's a huge huge star of Bollywood and a bunch of regional cinemas and it was kind of her comeback from this 15 year hiatus and she's spectacular in it. She plays this woman who lives in India and kind of has this like, you know, she's a homemaker who has this um, business making laddus um, and she sells them like from outside her home. But basically everyone from her kids to her husband just disrespects her. She can't speak English well either. She can only speak Hindi. Um, and that's just kind of like perceived as a huge handicap and her kids are embarrassed to be around her, etc. And then she has to go to um, America for a wedding of a relative and there while she's away from like you know her husband and kids she secretly enrolls in english classes and then you know follows this trajectory she kind of like realizes herself etc you know but i will say that like this performance from Sri Devi, who is considered this titan of Indian cinema, who I never really responded to before in a lot of the movies that she gained praise for like she's just so spectacular and I totally it's like this kind of thing where you watch this actor and you're like, I don't really get it. And then you see this one movie and it's like, shit, I have to like reevaluate, you know, <laughs> like everything that I had thought about this person before. That's how I felt with this whole um, performance of hers. And I've been thinking about it for weeks ever since I saw the movie, you know, mm. it's really good. So I wouldn't recommend you watch it because I think that there's a lot of like insufferable stuff to wade through, you know, but anyone who is serious and patient about Indian cinema should definitely watch it. <laughs> All right, well, thank you all for coming. This was delicious. Let's eat. Let's eat. <laughs> You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rippold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, and Kindle at filmcomment.com slash app. Janice Films is proud to present 24 Frames, the final film from Abbas Kiarostami a meditation on the nature of the moving image composed of 24 short films based on photographs by Kiarostami. 24 Frames opens February 2nd exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center.